penultimate. Uh, that's what that word means. Second to last. I say that a lot because it's one of those little things that if you remember it, it means you're at least listening to something. So penultimate means second to last. doesn't mean the, the, the ultimate example of something, right? People are like, that is the penultimate. It's like, that's the second to last. Um, uh, second to last, uh, today we are in the line, um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What we've been doing is we've been saying, this, this is a prayer that's being prayed all over the world, literally as we speak. It's been prayed for centuries by different um, types of people, by different traditions of Christianity. <clears throat> and in order to, to just get a little bit of a glimpse of that, we've been having the Lord's Prayer uh, read, prayed, in various languages represented in our own community. And so this morning, I'd like to welcome up Chris Mejia, uh, who's, um, who's going to do our reading. Oh, yeah, we need this. That's why I'm holding it. <coughs> It'll pop on. My name's Chris. Uh, Chris Mejia. I can do it without this. No, 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 no. Hello? There we go. Good morning, everybody. My name is Chris Mejia. Um, I'm honored and you know grateful to be up here just reading the, the Lord's Prayer in Spanish. Um, I'm from Honduras. I have family in Spain, too. So yeah, the Spanish background. Vosotros, pues, orar así. Padre nuestro, estás en el cielo. Santificado sea tu nombre. Venga tu reino. Hágase tu voluntad en la tierra como en el cielo. Danos hoy nuestro pan cotidiano. Perdónanos nuestras deudas como también nosotros hemos perdonado a nuestros deudores. Y no nos dejes caer en tentación, sino libéranos del maligno. Thank you. Amen. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I wonder what comes to mind for you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the, the final uh, couple lines in the, in the part of the prayer that shows up in the scriptures. The, the little uh, part that's added at the end will explain what that is next week. But uh, this is how the prayer concludes in, in the version of Matthew that we've mostly been looking at. There's two interesting translation issues that are worth addressing right here at the front end. So first, uh, lead us not into temptation. That word temptation there is a very interesting word in the original language, which was Greek. It's this word perasmas. So say perasmas. Well done, church. Perasmas. Uh, this is a word that certainly can be trans translated temptation, but it also has another uh, interesting usage throughout the New Testament, which is uh, this word trial, or really our, our modern word test. This shows up most pointedly in the first 
chapter of James. And one of the most difficult things about this first line of lead us not into temptation is this verse, James chapter 1, verse 13. It says this, the scrolly Bible. Okay, let, that's the sound that it makes in my mind every time we do this. Okay, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Then Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Why, if we're explicitly told this is not something that God does, why would we be asked to pray? It just presents a very interesting problem. But check this out. If we go earlier in that same chapter, this is James chapter 1, verse 4, just a little. Okay, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, that's the translation, of various kinds. The word for trials there is the same exact word, guess what it is? Parasmas, very good, as this word about when you are being tempted, let no one say, I am being tempted by God. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, parasmas, of various kinds, for you know that the testing, guess what word that is? Parasmas, the verb form of parasmas, for the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, the whole point of James 1, and we did a whole series through James, the whole point of James 1, and you could argue the whole point of the letter of James, this is the little brother of Jesus writing as the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is like a big deal, first century Jewish uh, Christian leader theologian says, no one should say that they're tempted by God, but when you face trials, temptations, these words, same word, You should let it have its effect. In other words, God uses the trials of our life to do this work, to change us, to to do the work that God is most invested in doing, which is to change us from the inside out into the people God has called us to be. What we define here uh, at Jacob's Well as discipleship, that there is no more rich context for discipleship than parasmas. What most translations of James do with these two words is that they say, well, maybe we're supposed to see them as two different things in these two separate places. So here you have God uses absolutely trials in our life, but God does not tempt us. And I think that that's a pretty good solution to this, that within context, if you're reading this, you would understand which usage, right? We have a category for a word meaning two different things given the context, but it is very interesting that they're used so closely together. Which is it? Lead us not into temptation or lead us not into testing and trial. And hopefully by the end, you're comfortable with me saying yes. I don't think that necessarily resolving that tension is what Jesus has in mind here so much as holding that tension together and yet still having permission to pray, God, I don't want either one. (laughs) Like, I want to not be led into either one. So that's the first translation issue. We'll get back to that. I'll go back to that. I know that I didn't resolve that, but just wanted to present that. Lead us not into parasmas, but deliver us from evil. How else have you heard that? Deliver us from the evil one, right? Like the uh, 
the gets included there, the definite article, and then capital E, capital O, the evil one. Referring to who? Satan, right? The personification of evil, this figure that contends against God and against the people of God, the accuser. Satan actually isn't a name. It's more of a title, a description. The Satan is the accuser of the people of God. And again, it's not super clear in the original which is necessarily going on here. What Jesus literally says is, and deliver us from the evil. And it is perfectly legitimate to say the evil one, that he's talking specifically about Satan here. But it's also perfectly legitimate to just say the evil as opposed to the good. Deliver us from that which is evil, with the ultimate example of that being the accuser himself, the evil one, as opposed opposed to not delivering us from, from the good. So lead us not in temptation, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into tests and trials, but deliver us from the evil one. I think both are absolutely legitimate and in play. But this is where these couple lines get interesting. Let me show you uh, one other place where, where some of this shows up. When you think of, we have said from the beginning that before Jesus teaches us to pray this, he first embodies and enacts the prayer. Okay, so the idea of being led into temptation but ultimately delivered from evil, can anyone think of a time where that shows up in the life of Jesus? Good, I'm hearing like four different answers, and you're all right. Okay, um, right? Like we will ultimately, working from, from the back forward, we will ultimately talk about the cross. We'll ultimately talk about the Garden of Gethsemane. What I'm particularly have in mind here is the one earliest in his ministry life, which is what? Tempted by the devil, literally tempted by the evil one, right? This is so interesting. So so Matthew, um, just two two chapters prior. So this is Matthew 4, uh, just two chapters prior to Jesus teaching us this prayer. Listen to the language that's used here. This is the the temptation in the desert. This happens right at the front end of Jesus's ministry. He's baptized. It's this amazing moment where God identifies him as his son. And immediately, this is what it says. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry as one is. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones become loaves of bread. Who tempts Jesus? Satan, right? We're told that explicitly. He is tempted by the devil. Who leads him to the place where he will be tempted? Spirit of God. That's so, do you see, do you see how embodied even in this moment, we have this kind of tension, we have this kind of tension, I want to say tempting. We have this kind of tension between it is God that leads him to this place where he will be tested and tried. But it is not God. In fact, I think Matthew and all the gospel writers are at pains to show us it is not God who himself directly tempts Jesus. He is merely led out into the wilderness by God to be tempted by the evil one, by Satan himself. And what's so interesting as this, right, okay, so let's, let's start talking about what this prayer is getting at. To say, lead us not into temptation. What is, let, let's go with that word temptation for now. When you think of temptation, I wonder what comes into your mind. 
almost inevitably, temptation, as, as it should be, which is accurate, temptation is when we sense the potential to do something that we are not supposed to do, right? Like, simple. Think of kids being tempted, right? Like, you don't tempt people to do good things, right? Like, you don't, um, you know, like, no one's ever come, come up to you and be like, oh, Ben, you want to go get generous? You know, like, that's, like, not, <laughs> right? Like, isn't that interesting, though? That was, like, mind-blowing for me. It was like, yeah, you're not tempted to do good. Or, like, you're tempted to do evil. And here, what we have is the tempter himself we watch his playbook, and, and if we had time, which we certainly don't, especially this morning with everything else going on, I would walk you through this, this whole scene in Matthew 4. Here's what I'll say, though. I'll give you a little bit of a summary, because I think what we're watching, as much as anything else that this story is supposed to reveal about us, and I think it's primarily supposed to reveal to us that Jesus is, is the human being that none of us could be. Because when we think of temptation in the Bible, where's the very first place that it shows up? in the Garden of Eden, right? Like this is when the tempter comes, when the serpent comes to our first parents, Adam and Eve, he is inciting them to evil. He is there to destroy them. He is there not to help them fulfill God's will, but in fact, to do exactly the opposite of God's will. And he has, and and the tempter there has a certain strategy. And what's fascinating is the strategy that shows up in this account in Matthew 4 is after how many thousands of years between Adam and Eve and the coming of Jesus, is not that different. This is one of the things we have to understand about temptation. We have to understand about evil, is that evil is not creative. It's not creative. It's got no new tricks. It's tired. And so we see in in the account of Jesus being tempted, we see the very same things that showed up thousands of years earlier in the garden, which is that the tempter starts out talking to Jesus by saying, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, right? Like all temptation begins with a question about our identity and specifically our identity with reference to God. Are you really, are you sure you're a Christian? Are you sure that that's stuff, right? Seeds of doubt that are planted there. Then he says, if you are the son of God, say to these stones, become bread. Why? We were just told he's been out there 40 days and 40 nights fasting, led out by God. So God has clearly told him, go out there and fast until I say don't fast anymore. And it's over a month into it. Like, like most of us are freaking out because we've got two days at the end of this week and we're like, how can I, you know, smoothies? Can I sneak a smoothie in, right? Like, 40 days, the enemy comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, why are you hungry? Why are you out here? What are you doing? What's the point of this? The enemy points to his circumstances and says, if you are, if there really is a heavenly father who loves you, what in the world are you doing? Hungry and tired and frail and in the circumstances that you're in. This is exactly the stuff he whispered to those first human beings in the garden. Did God really say? Do you know what the enemy says? And again, I wish that I could show you all these passages. You know what he actually says to them? 
Remember, okay, so Adam and Eve, you got to know the story a little bit. I apologize if I'm blazing way, way too quick through it. But basically, the, the story is God plants human beings, Adam and Eve, in a garden, says you could have the whole thing. You could have the whole deal, like the whole menu at Pliables, like everything, every tree, every fruit, it's all for your taking. There's one tree that I ask you not to receive from. There's one tree. Because that one tree stands in for your awareness that I am the one who gets to define what's good. And I say, that's not good. And if there were something not good here, then all you would know was good. But I'm going to put this here as a means of, guess what? Testing. Because here's the, here's the opposite of temptation. Temptation is when we're, we're drawn out to do something evil. Testing, think of that word, right? What's a test? My kids, I didn't grow up in a school culture that did this, but my kids always now have show what you know test. Right? Like that's, that's the lingo in, in, in modern schooling or whatever. Show what you know, right? A test reveals who you are. It shows you who you are. Are you someone who studied for your math test or are you not someone who studied? Are you someone who grasped these concepts or do you not grasp them? And in knowing that a test is coming, guess what? You prepare more. You are formed by the awareness of that test. And so it both reveals and also forms who you are. That's what a test is meant to do. God is perfectly willing to put us to the test because he seeks to form us. Not to say, gotcha, right? This isn't like the, the teacher who you'd walk in and they'd be like, pop quiz, and they'd give you some mean test and they'd put these tricky, you know, gotcha questions and all that stuff. No, this is the teacher who three weeks prior goes, I'm going to test you on this. This is going to be on the test, right? Like God tells us, here's what you need in order to be a flourishing human being. I'm going to give you everything you need. And then we're tested on that. And we say, oh, where's this from, right? God is like, no, no, this is what I'm always doing. And so God puts that tree to say, this is how I'm going to form you. It's not going to all be yes for you. There's got to be some no in order for me to develop the character that you want. Then the tempter shows up. You know what my man says? He literally says to them, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? What? Did God really? Do you know how radically different that is than what God said? I bet most of us have never seen that that's what he comes to them and says. He says, if God is as good as he says he is, how dare he say you can't have any fun in this garden? And they go, yeah, that is what he said. No, 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 that's not what he said. In fact, Eve does correct him. She says, no, 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 it's not really like that. But it puts this seed of doubt in her mind. Well, what is it about that tree, right? This is always what the tempter is doing. Is he's calling us to doubt the goodness of God. He's calling us to doubt our identity in God, right? Like, this is what happens when the enemy wins and we do evil. Man, doesn't that stuff ramp up like 6,000%? Are you really a Christian? <gasps> you gave in. How dare you, right? Like, this is what makes the enemy insane, is he's the one who beckons us, and then when we do it, go, oh, how, how dare you, right? Like, oh, you're such a terrible, you're the one who told me to, you ever had that friend? You're the one who told me to do it, and now you're acting all scandalized that I did it, right? Like, this is how ridiculous the enemies were and how predictable it is. Yet here's the unbelievable thing. Our first parents fail, and everyone up to Jesus fails, and then one comes who actually is led out to be tested, is tempted face to face by the tempter, 
We don't get the ind indication this is a serpent. This is who, whatever kind of being the enemy is, face to face with Jesus. And finally one stands firm. You know how he does it? He refuses to listen to the lies of that voice and instead insists by speaking it out himself and listening to the truth of who God is, namely by quoting his word. That's what he does again and again. He says, no, you're wrong about that. No, you're wrong about that. No, you're wrong about that. No, you don't put God to the test. He gets to test us. We don't test him. You know what? The most important thing is not my circumstances because man doesn't live by bread alone. The most important thing about who I am is whether I am actively obeying and in submission to God. If I'm hungry, so what? At least I have God. That is not what defines me is my circumstances. It's my connectedness to God. And I believe that right now I am walking faithfully and doing exactly what he calls me to do so I have everything I need, even if death should come. And we finally have one who stands against this. What's incredible is as that story goes on, right? Like many, many scholars would argue that it seems like what happens at the temptation is that the enemy kind of starts to realize he's done in. Because every, every time uh, that, that evil interacts with, like personified, the, the demonic interacts with Jesus from there forward, there's a sense of defeat. There's a sense of awareness that their time has come. What's extraordinary is as we move toward the cross, though, the work of the enemy increases. Because you almost get the sense, like, the enemy's like, wait, maybe, maybe Jesus is starting. He was hungry for 40 days back then. Now, it looks like he's facing crucifixion. Maybe now I can get my hands on him. And all the way into the Garden of Gethsemane. But by the way, when Jesus is walking into the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he says in so many words, you have been with me through my trials, through my tests, but now you're going to need to pray because there's a test and trial coming. I'm not confident you can stand, but I can, but I can. And you know how he does it again? He does it again by listening to the voice of his father, by saying, God, what matters most is my connectedness to you. What matters most is your will, right? He embodies this prayer. My Father, who is in heaven, I want your name to be hallowed, and if this is the cost, so it is. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will, not mine, to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, if this is what bread looks like, if I need to become the daily bread that finally saves humanity from its constant cycles of giving in to temptation, if that's what it needs to be, then yes. God, I really don't want to be led into this. Isn't it beautiful that we see the humanity of Jesus in him praying this prayer? It's the only part of the prayer God does not answer for Jesus. Do you see that? Lead me not into this, God. Let this cup, let your wrath pass from me. God, deliver me from this. And he goes faithfully to the cross, and yet his prayer is not answered. Is that paradox here? How the one who taught us to pray this, these are the lines that God did not answer for him on that night before he was crucified. The question is why? Why did God refuse to answer this prayer for Jesus? We'll get to that. Four things that I think are going on when we pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. One is that we take, write these down. We got four things. One, we take evil seriously, but not too seriously. 
evil shows up in this prayer because I think that we are to be as followers of Jesus, people keenly aware of the reality of evil in this world and in our own hearts. Jesus wants us to stare that in the face. He says, evil is real. It's real. It's active in the world and it's active in and through you. Therefore, you need to be delivered from it. And you don't have a prayer of being delivered from it apart from praying to me who can deliver you from it. C.S. Lewis, famously a great Christian thinker, author of the last century, famously says this. You probably heard this quoted in pop culture in various ways. There are two equal and opposite errors into which people can fall about the devils, about evil. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, love this, and hail a materialist, someone who believes there is no spiritual realities at all. There is just what we can see, taste, feel, measure, observe. He is equally pleased by both errors and hails a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Hey, what's that? quote from, what movie is that, Devil's Advocate or whatever, with the greatest lie, or no, is it Usual Suspects, that's what it is, the Kaiser Sose moment, um, that the greatest lie the devil ever told is that, you know, he doesn't exist, right? That is one lie that he tells. Other people, though, he, he just, right, like in, in non-Western nations, the awareness of evil, the palpable, tangible experience of evil is a much realer thing. Is that because they are less sophisticated, is it because they haven't figured out that the enlightenment happened and now we know that the world is just... No, it's because the enemy's winning potentially in both places when God is disbelieved. And we of all people who believe that a man went into the ground dead as anything and rose again and now sits at the right hand of God victorious, who are we to say spiritually eyes? No, that's weird stuff. That's strange, unsophisticated stuff. No, evil is real. It's why Jesus wants it on our lips. I love uh, what an, another Lord's Prayer book said. I, I came across this. Um, the power, this is where I'm even getting the language of take it seriously, but not too seriously. The power of evil must be admitted and taken seriously, yet not too seriously. Perhaps that is why, though the Lord's Prayer honestly focuses upon trial, temptation, and evil, it never mentions Satan by name. It won't give him that dignity. Evil is a threatening power, though a defeated one. Though the battle rages, we know who has won the war. Jesus was, God did not answer this, this, these two lines of the prayer on Jesus' lips for this reason. Listen to how the letter that Paul wrote to, to a church in a place called Colossae, the, the letter to the Colossians. Listen to the language that it uses to explain what happened on the cross. And you who are dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us, this is what, how we're familiar with thinking about the cross, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's how we normally think, I had sins, I had a debt before God, right? The stuff we've been talking about the last two weeks, you have a debt before God, that debt needs to be paid by someone, that's what Jesus did, nailed it to the cross. But listen to the next couple of verses. In the cross, in his death and resurrection, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. Those are talking about spiritual rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus' Jesus's victory on the cross 
was, yes, a payment for your sins. It was also a victory over evil once and for all. It was the decisive blow in the great cosmic, always unfair, imbalanced battle between good and evil. From the day Jesus rose from the grave, evil has known, is hyper aware that its time has come. That all it can do is take some last scraps in a war that is already over. This is the clear teaching of the New Testament. Therefore, as the people of God, we must be aware of evil. We must know that it's real. We must also believe and live as though it has been defeated. Its time is up. It will not win. It will not even win in your story. Even though so often you and I give into that voice and we say, how did it win again? Its old tricks worked again. And the enemy will come in and say, that's because you're not a Christian. And then we say, no, you've been disarmed. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is actually still forgiveness because that debt has been paid. Therefore, you're not going to win. The victory of evil is always partial and temporary. Let's start living that way. One last thing that I'll say on this one is we pray, deliver us from evil. Its victory is ultimately final, or, or its defeat is ultimately final in the cross, right? But we have not seen that victory implemented fully. And so we are not those who will ever, on our own, conquer evil. You get delivered from things that you yourself can't overcome. You hear that language of deliverance? I need to be delivered from evil. To use a, a, a relevant analogy from the life of Jesus himself. When his disciples are in a storm and the boat is rocking, right, they don't say, Jesus, help us overcome this. They say, Jesus, deliver us. We have no power, ultimate power, to change what is, what is coming against us. But you do. Jesus is the conqueror of evil. You are not. You are one. I am one who needs to be delivered from that which he has conquered. This is why actually fighting against temptation is literally impossible without God. If you do not have his resources, you are in a storm that you cannot still. If you do, if you cry out to him, if you actually access the name of Jesus, the word of God, the truth of God, in the midst of temptation, you are going to the one who can calm that storm, who can say to the wind and waves of temptation and evil, be still, I am the authority over you. This is where, this is where we get it twisted about who we are, y'all, is we think it's me against evil, it's me against the devil, and I'll like tap Jesus in like a tag team wrestling like when I need him. No, 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 you got no shot, you're in a storm right? Deliver us from evil. Do you believe that evil is something you need to be delivered from? At its most essential, have we gotten to the point where we see evil as dangerous? Or do we see it as this is what a fun life would, be, would look like, and I'll dabble with it to kind of get my fix until either I'm found out, I start to feel too guilty, or I really start to destroy my life. But until that day, I mean, don't deliver me from it. Let me do it as long as I can because this is kind of sweet. Work with college students for eight years. 
This was often the battle. What do you think evil is? What do, you, what do you think temptation is? What do you think sin is? Do you think that there's a cosmic killjoy who says the fun stuff? No. And then you've got a war against the reality that you know in your heart of hearts and that all the culture knows, which is that's the fun stuff. And now you've got to say no to it. And oh, I'm tempted to do it. No, I'm not tempted to do it. I actually love this stuff. It's where my heart is. But maybe sometimes I feel guilty. Maybe sometimes I begin to destroy my life. Maybe sometimes I'm a little embarrassed around my other Christian friends. Right? Like we can live a whole lifetime not naming evil for what it is. The enemy is not your helper. The enemy was not like a, 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 do you get that? He hates you. He hates life. He hates God. He loves that you love the things that he wants you to love. He loves to play on the stuff where he and I are aligned in how we would define good. But his definition of good is destructive, is deathly, is poison. And so often the battle with sin actually begins there. Do we really believe it's poison? Do we really believe it's a storm? When we pray, deliver us from evil, we're declaring at least that. Second thing, we've got to know the difference between a trial and a temptation. I think that this is ultimately what James is getting at. I think it's ultimately what, even the way that the temptation of Jesus is driving towards uh, put up Proverbs 17. Just a very simple proverb to illustrate this point. Crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. The idea of the Lord testing us is one that's throughout the scriptures. It is what he does. He uses the circumstances, the furnace of life, in order to mold us. He is there in the midst of life's greatest difficulties, and he has purposes for them. The scriptures are not... You know, I wish that I could just show you the chapter where it explains why is there evil in the world and why do, you know, good things or bad things or, yeah, bad things happen to good people or whatever it is, right? Like, we don't have a huge explanation. What I do know is that the scriptures are primarily focused on what is God doing with the bad stuff in the world? And the, and the first answer to that is he came and bore it all upon himself, went all the way into it, does not stand at a distance from it. But there's also an answer to what is God doing with the bad stuff in my life? And the answer is he is active in that stuff. I don't know how to parse out, did he cause it and all that stuff, but I do know that there is no circumstance in your life that God wrings his hand and says, I don't know if I can bring good for them in the midst of this absolutely we experience difficulty that way. Absolutely we throw our hands up and say, there can't be any good to come from this. God does not. That is the clear teaching of scripture. Instead, it says, consider it all joy because there is one over and above, sovereign over your trials and tests who is bringing his purposes in your life about, in and through them. And so it's so important to know that the only difference between a trial and a temptation Hear me now. The only difference, because it's not vocabulary, because it's the same thing, the only difference between a temptation and a trial is whose voice are you listening to? Whose voice are you listening to? Who's loudest? Jesus is led into the wilderness. God says this is a test. The enemy says this is a temptation. God leads him to a test. The enemy says this is a perfect opportunity for temptation. Every single difficulty and trial in your life, God says, this is a test. The enemy says, no, it's a temptation. And they will both begin to speak. They will both begin to speak. 
You might not realize it. You might be so used to listening to one or the other voice, you might not even hear it as a voice external to yourself, but they are speaking. And there is never a time where it is more important to bring the truth of God to bear in your life than in the midst of a text. Because he needs to be loud. You've got to turn the volume up on him. This is not easy because it doesn't always feel like God is active. It doesn't, it seldom, I should say, feels like, oh, I'm in a test. This is great. Oh, man, what? No, it's hard. It's hungry for 40 days and nights type hard. The image that comes to mind for me is, I don't know if you've ever been a child or been with a child in the midst of, of in especially busy area. Um, like the, the image that comes to mind for me is, I don't know if you've ever stood in like Penn Station or Grand, Grand Central during rush hour and everybody's looking at those boards and then it's like track 21, boom, right? And like there's this explosion. If you've ever been with a child in the midst of that, that is, that is a test. That is like, a, okay, what are we going to do here? And what it makes me think of, and, and I think that with an awareness of the difference between a trial and a temptation, I think that when we pray, lead us not into temptation, here's what we're saying. God, your voice has to be loud enough for this not to turn into a temptation. You've got to be close to me. And God says, I do not tempt you. That will not be what happens. I won't let it happen. And we say, don't do it. And he says, I won't. And we say, don't do it. Right? Have you ever been with a child in a circumstance where they're holding your hand so tightly or you've been holding a hand so tightly and you just keep repeating to that person, don't let me go, don't let me go, don't let me go. Now that person, 0% has intentions of letting you go. Right? This is a parent, right? Picture you're that parent, you're the uncle, you're whoever, holding that child's hand. This child is looking up at you, you're in Grand Central Station and they're saying, don't let me go, don't let me go, don't lead me away. You're saying, I won't, I won't, I won't. And so you steadily make your way where you need to go, right? And if you're that child, you're, you're at, you know, this height, and all you're experiencing is all of this chaos and madness, and all you feel is that hand, and you scream up, you say, don't let me go, don't let me go. And they're leading you, and they're leading you. They're bringing you somewhere, and you're saying, don't let me go. And ultimately, at the end, you get where you're intended to go. And the whole time, what felt like a temptation was actually a trial leading you somewhere getting you somewhere you couldn't go on your own. And you screaming out, don't let me go, lead me not away, was not what got you there. But it may be what you needed in order to just speak over yourself. There is one clutching me who will not let me go. And there's no amount of you screaming that that's gonna make that, that, that hand hold you firmer. But you go ahead and shout it out, little boy. You go ahead and shout it out, little girl. Because if that's what you need right now, that's what you need. Because you might not be able to hear my voice. The chaos around you might be too loud, but I'm holding you. I'm leading you somewhere. I'm using this. It's a test, and it only becomes a temptation. It only becomes a temptation if you stop saying, don't let me go, and you let go. And you wander off. And you find yourself alone in the sea of your difficulties, in the chaos of temptation. Right, this prayer, if it's anything, is clutching on fast. Saying, God, lead me not. Make it a test. I can't stand under the temptation. I know I can't. Make it a test. Hold me tight. Third thing, don't forget that we pray. Lead us not into temptation. The sweet collective of this prayer. So you're alone. You're in your little, whenever you pray, you're praying all of these 
first-person plural pronouns, our Father who art in heaven, right? And then you come to this line, and it's lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think part of the intention here is that others would come to mind who are maybe going through a trial, who are experiencing that trial subtly becoming a temptation, or whose temptations you know of, and you just haven't checked in on that person in a while, and now on your lips are, lead us not into temptation. And you think about your spouse, and you think about your kids, and you think about your friends. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. One of the things that I hope you've gotten from all of these weeks of this prayer is that so often God is calling us to be the answer to the prayers we prayed. And if we pray for one another, don't lead them into temptation, God, but deliver them from evil. And then we sit on our hands and do nothing ourselves to help. This prayer is hollow. We need to be drawn to one another, right? And here, I'll just give you a a very practical application of this. I am not asking you to do this for 30 other people. I'm talking about the people who have entrusted the secrets of their life together, the people who have confessed sin to you and said, this is an area of ongoing struggle for me. And then maybe we check in for a while, but it's been six months. The likelihood that that temptation has somehow gone away is small. You know how I know? Because yours haven't gone away. (laughs) Mine haven't gone away. Most of us struggle with the same things, right? This is where the enemy is not creative. It's like, well, maybe we'll go back to that one, right? One of the most beautiful things you can do, having prayed, lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is to pick up the phone and say, hey, how are you doing with that thing? Hey, I was praying. And God brought you to mind as I prayed those two lines. That's not a condemning thing. That's not because you're such a horrible person who has a terrible sin that you struggle with. No, it's actually me tenderly coming to you and saying, hey, I'm assuming that you're just like me, right? We humbly pursue one another's good. Because when we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, not only do we not pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil, we don't say, lead them, right, not into temptation. Us, this is collective. This is our shared identity. We are people who tend to be tempted. We are people who tend to fail the test. And so when we approach someone, and say, hey, how's that thing going for you? We must be equally open to say, and hey, here's, here's the thing that, that's been heavy on me recently. Right? When was the last time you did that? Use this. Use this as an excuse to do that. Hey, when Pastor Scott was saying that thing about people having shared something with someone, I realize it's been, um, God brought something to mind for me. Very, very close friend. It's been a year and a half since I checked in on it. And it drove me to do that. Say, hey, I'm studying these two lines this week. I'm praying them a lot, and you keep coming to mind. How's that thing going? Last one that we, that we pray is that we are declaring how much we long for the ultimate defeat of evil. Right? Listen, listen to this, this great quote. It's the two-parter there, Mike. When we pray, deliver us from evil, we are asking to be able to see, enjoy, and live in accord with what is true but still largely unseen in the present. Remember this, this whole overlapping of reality. We know that Jesus has already secured our final release from the evil one, but we still sense evil's nearness and taste its effects. Amen? Amen. The victory of Jesus is real, but not currently as visible as it one day will be. And so in confidence, but also in trembling and with tears, we pray for the final, public, irreversible experience of celebrating the defeat of the regime of our enemy. Amen? Amen, amen. Evil will not have the final say. You will, <laughs> you will not be tempted forever. Isn't that so freeing? 
The enemy will be vanquished. He will be thrown into the lake of fire. And in all of the offensive images of Revelation, that's the one that I got no issue with. The enemy will be thrown into a lake of fire. He will be destroyed, incinerated forever, undone by his own rebellion. That day is coming. And when we say, deliver us from evil, we are saying, God, do it today, but I know you're going to do it one day, ultimately, completely, comprehensively in my life. This is our hope, right? I love how this prayer looks over our shoulders and sees the one who vanquished evil by himself going into the ultimate test, who himself was not delivered on this side of his death. Yes, he was ultimately delivered because the enemy was never going to win, right? Like, that's the point of the resurrection. The enemy was never going to win. Jesus' faithfulness was always going to win out over the enemy's rebellion. And so even in his death, I bet the enemy was like, sweet, I, I killed the righteous one. And then God was like, yeah, but you die for sin uh, because of your own sin. None of that sin was his, so he's raised again. The enemy goes, ah, that foxed again, right? He's not creative. God is the creative one. He did a new thing. God brings new life. The enemy brings old, deathly tricks. This is the God that we pray to. Pray in confidence, Jacob Swell, that we will be delivered. The tempter's day is coming. Let's live today ourselves and for one another in that victory that's already been secured. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, that when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, that you are holding our hand in the midst of life's trials and difficulties. God, there are some here who feel that grip loosening. God, today I pray that they would know that the only loosening that's happening is their own God, that you have them fast. And I pray that even the gritty, tear-filled prayers that say, deliver me, Lord, deliver me, God, that you would hear those prayers today. God, that they would know that your work is never done in our lives. No matter how much we give in, no matter how um, weakened, even defeated we feel by the enemy, those are always partial victories for the enemy. Your victory is ultimate. Pray that we would look to that today and that we would be people who wage war against sin, knowing that evil, there's no delight in it. There's only death. God, that's such a hard thing to believe this side of eternity. Help us to grow in that. Help us to speak that over each other and help us see the goodness of God, the lavish grace that is actually offered to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.